Hey, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of the Engaging the Phenomenon podcast, where we discuss UFOs and consciousness. Now, here today, we have a special guest named Daniel Ingram, and he has written a book called Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book. And he also co-founded the Dharma Overground, which I'd like to add is very similar to what I do with uh, my CE5 initiative uh, Facebook group in the sense that like it's a community of people that are having CE5 experiences or they're looking for CE5 contact experiences and we help network them and and uh, share information and, and talk about experiences. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. Should I talk a little bit about myself? Is that what you were saying I should do yeah, like an let's, intro or something? Yeah, let's let's. So for people who may not be familiar with you, and I, I'm just going to say, um, I, I came across your work because I had, I posted something about Bhikkhu and Alio, and we all know that's a controversial thing or, you know, in the, the Dharma world. <laughs> and so we're both controversial. Yeah. You know, and so one of my followers on Twitter actually said something about, oh man, I can't believe Bhikkhu and Alio said something about Dan Ingram. And I was, I was, I was like, wait, <laughs> I can't, Dan- that's amazing. That it took him this long. Well, and so I was like, wait, I know that name. I know Daniel Ingram. So anybody listening to me knows I'm really into like meditation, consciousness, Buddhism, yoga, all those kind of things. And, and uh, so that's something people can call like the Dharma world. And um, now Daniel is part of that world. And so is Bhikkhu Analyo. So I had heard your name before and I heard your name and I'm like, okay, let me relook into who this is. And then I found you on Guru Vikings uh, podcast or YouTube, and I saw that video with you uh, talking about the whole um, controversy, and <laughs> I was amazed. I thought you handled it so well, and I, I thought I learned a lot from that, um, but just that that's as a note. So now, um, tell everybody listening to this, who, who is Daniel Ingram? So I'm a 50-year... Uh, sorry, 52-year-old retired ER doctor who lives in northern Alabama out on out in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains outside of a town called Huntsville, which for those of you who know something about the world of space is where the rockets mm-hmm. come from. So this is the, I live 20 miles from the world's largest high-tech concentrated center of high-tech weapons and space development. Um, if that doesn't play somehow into this whole story, I would be astounded. Um, and so that's, that's where I live. And I worked uh, for a long time in major level one trauma centers and things. And then I retired a few years ago and I also wrote this book, um, something of, I guess it's routinely described as something of a cult classic, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, which you can find online for free at mctb.org. Um, I don't do this for the money, thank God, or I would be broke. Um, and uh, so, and somewhere along the way, I founded the Dharma Overground uh, with a bunch of friends, including particularly co-founder Vince Horn. And also am now helping to organize something called the EPRC or the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium, which is a large international consortium of neuroscientists and psychiatrists and all kinds of miscellaneous academics of all kinds of cool types, uh, uh, neurologists and um, consciousness researchers and people who check out all kinds of fascinating phenomena like out-of-body travel and the connection between awakening and you know depersonalization, derealization, and all kinds of cool stuff. Anyway, fundamental theories, consciousness, etc., and trying to help them 
organize such that they can be more effective and more connected amongst themselves and hopefully bring more of an awareness of this to the clinical and medical mainstream because the transpersonal literature, as fascinating as it is, has had essentially zero penetration into the clinical mainstream. Textbooks of emergency medicine, emergency psychiatry, there's basically nothing. And so I thought I would use my um, talent training in remaining years to try to increase the ability of my fellow clinicians in the field, ER doctors, emergency psychiatrists, neurologists, general practitioners, et cetera, to add value to patient care of people who are having these kinds of experiences or want to discuss this kind of stuff, rather than being the, let's just say, not that well-informed, perhaps potentially actively harmful people they currently are. That's not no fault of their own. I think they're generally extraordinarily good people, um, and we're just trying to figure out a way to give them better science and better information and better protocols such that they can relate to people who, let's say, had one of these experiences and uh, such that you could actually tell your doctor about it and it wouldn't be an actively potentially dangerous, you know, career threatening, mental health diagnosis threatening, et cetera, thing to do. And, and so, and then to support that, I'm also now the acting CEO and board chair of something called Emergence Benefactors, which is the charity designed to raise the hundreds of millions of dollars we think it will take to do the research uh, over a few decades to fund the few hundred people it will take to do this, to really get this well-established in the DSM and ICD-10 and 11 World Health Organization billing codes, et cetera. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out how to raise that money and promote uh, the EPRC through Emergence Benefactors with the team there. And so that's, a, that's most of what I spend my time doing when I'm not talking to people about their anomalous experiences or what we might call emergent experiences or insights or pick your favorite language for this stuff and um, talking to them about how they might relate to those in more skillful ways and take better advantage of the opportunities that these experiences and the techniques that have created them may afford them. So that's sort of the short story on me. Uh, maybe not that short, but anyway, hopefully that's it'll give you a sense of what I'm up to. For sure. And that's great. And I think that's an awesome effort. And just as a kind of side note that uh, there was a, a Harvard psychologist, I think he was the, the chair of the uh, psychiatry uh, department of Harvard named John Mack. And he, he dealt with people, um, I believe, in the early 90s uh, regarding these contact experiences uh, with either UFOs or non-human intelligence, some would call aliens. Yeah, he and, interviewed the kids at the African school. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so he did a lot of important work and they tried to bury him for that. And, you know, luckily enough, the guy had a reputation for himself, very smart. He handled himself very well and he was able to maintain his career, although he, he um, received a lot of scrutiny. But again, he was a trailblazer and did a lot of great work. So I think somebody like you is doing great work as well, too, because these are such important topics that need to be understood, not how they're usually denied or kind of frowned upon. You know, it's, it's 2021 where, you know, this kind of stuff is, it's part of the human experience. Right, exactly. Um, and William James actually was at Harvard. So, you know, 120 years ago, uh, William James, the, the great author of the varieties of religious experience, uh, oh, you can read all kinds of fascinating phenomenology in that book, actually, that if you're, if you like this kind of thing is actually a great place to start. Actually, there's plenty of stuff before him. He didn't arise in a vacuum. But uh, if you haven't read the varieties of religious experience or listened to it, it's an audiobook. also, I highly recommend it as and plenty of you I think will recognize 
parallels in your own experience if you've had some of this stuff happening to you and you'll be like oh check that out wait this has been going on for 120 years and how did a mainstream highly respected psychiatrist at harvard 120 years ago manage to have essentially none of this pe penetrate the clinical mainstream so this is this is a long slog actually uh, and um, the history of amazing people who have gone up against this and basically had total failure to penetrate uh, the, the sort of the walled garden of the um, the uh, mainstream academy is impressive. Um, so honored to be uh, following in their footsteps in my humble way. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's incredible because, you know, you, you look at some of these experiences and, and they're cataloged back you know, as far as human history goes, people have been having anomalous experiences to some extent. Um, but that's part of why I wanted to bring you on here is because you have a, a wealth of knowledge of consciousness and um, experiences that people would consider extraordinary. And, and, and part of that, in, in my own uh, opinion, are, you know, come through meditation or even just insight stages. I think the consciousness is, is fundamental to all these things, whether it be UFOs, um, contact with non-human intelligence, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, they all seem to come together fundamentally when it, it comes down to consciousness. Well, actually, um, everything. I mean, David Hume's point of yeah. view is literally experience is clearly the first basis of everything and from which we extrapolate everything, all science, all knowledge, all interaction, obviously is first based in experience. Without experience, you have none of that. And yeah. so the subjective point of view clearly has some relevance. And, uh, you know, it's funny, you use the term phenomenology and, uh, you know, in, in the UFO world, some people will know that uh, people in the CIA, like deep in the, in the secrecy of the CIA, who, who looked into this topic were, were calling it phenomenology studies, you know? So that's, a, that's a, also an interesting note, because they probably are familiar with that older work you were talking about. I hope so. Because um, it also comes a lot with, um, you know, UFOs generally come with like some kind of psychic experience with it, you know, um, whether you want to speculate that during an abduction that some people are taken out of their body into like a mental realm or a psychic realm and having the experience or it's sometimes actually physically occurring. So that's that's a really um, interesting parallel there. Um, well, actually, that is being dropped out of a spaceship is literally how I described one of what I would call my arising and passing away events to the meditation teacher. So I was on this meditation retreat. It was my first ever Oh, Insight. Daniel, can, can you, I'm sorry, can you just, I'll, I'll pause. Tell, I'm sorry. Can you just tell people what an arising and passing insight oh, yeah. experience is? Sure. So there's, there's lots of ways to map all of this stuff. And I'm something of a fanatical student of maps of meditative and spiritual terrain, but the one that for a mix of historical, pragmatic, and just it's sort of clean descriptive reasons I like, um, is, uh, stages of insight. And this comes out of, um, you first see the prototypical form in the Patisambi Damaga, which is a late Pali canon text in the Kuruka Nikaya. And then you see it in the Abhidhamma. And then you see it later in the Vimudimaga and the Visudimaga, which are these texts from the first and uh, fifth centuries um, AD or, uh, BC, or sorry, CE, depending on which you want to call it. And um, 
then uh, these maps essentially involve a series of 16 stages on the way to first stages of awakening. And then um, there's a stage called the arising and passing away, which is the most spectacular of all of them. And uh, not everybody who who studies this agrees with me, but so just, you know, there's controversy about exactly what should be called the arising and passing away and what shouldn't be. But um, from a lot of point of, point of people's point of view, uh, it's a peak experience. So when you have a peak experience or Kundalini awakening or near death experiences, the vast majority fall into this category. Um, and particularly if you had it without death, but you know, cause some people say, oh, I had an NDE, even if they weren't like, you know, crashing and being coded by some doctor or something, but you know, the, the two seem essentially the same. I've talked to a lot of people who have had NDEs and they seem just like the arising and passing away to me just in profoundly adverse circumstances. This can happen on psychedelics as a result of all kinds of natural processes that happened to me as a kid, just trying to have better flying dreams, visualize flying between planets. So obviously I have this sort of long history of relationship to things, space um, and flying around in space. And so, uh, but anyway, so it can happen a whole ton of ways. It is a huge topic. I could literally talk about on it for hours, but one of the times it happened to me, the way it happened to me, I was sitting there on the meditation cushion and all of a sudden, all of my body felt like it broke down into whirring, moving rapidly, flickering, sparking particles of energy. Like I could suddenly see with just in, uh, astoundingly increased resolution of mind and attention, my mind felt bright. Uh, like, you know, just off the charts, clear and could perceive a bazillion little, it felt like, you know, people routinely describe this as like cellular level or atomic, though really those are way smaller than I could actually perceive and way faster, but still people use words like this anyway. And then there was this massive amount of bliss and rapture and energy in my body. And suddenly it felt like the whole thing kind of went boom and I was catapulted and it felt like I was catapulted rapidly, like way high up in the sky. And then there's this sort of glitchy period where I just can't make any sense of it. It's too incomprehensible. And I'm a pretty good phenomenologist. All I can say is like, I don't know. And then there was the distinct sense of dropping back down and, and then hitting my body and everything was buzzy and kind of crazy. And then I was like all excited and hyper philosophical. This is, I don't know, day four or five or something of this nine day meditation retreat. And um. So I'm like, wow, what the hell? And I, I talked to this about the teacher and I said, you know, it literally felt like I was dropped out of a spaceship was, were the words that came out of my mouth. And I had very little exposure actually at that point to anything alien UFO, et cetera. My um, education on these uh, topics was nothing like what it is today. There wasn't as much information available, though still plenty um, and, or not as easily. But that was what I was like, I don't know. It's kind of what it felt like it happened. And so I can totally understand um, from my own experience, why people, you know, say these things and have these experiences and go, wow, that's what it felt like, because that is what it felt like to me, <laughs> anyway, in my interpretation. So, yeah, I, I, it's funny. <laughs> this in, is only in, one of the many times something like that has happened to me. So, right, that's just one, but. Um, yeah. Oh, I should mention, by the way, by in terms of spaceships, by the way, this one is a rental. I, I don't own one this nice. <laughs> um, I, I just thought it'd be cool for the the, the shoot. So, yeah, you know, you're doing you're doing anyway. pretty well for yourself. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and again, getting to those kind of inside experiences and how they can sometimes parallel with contact experiences. So, you know, during one of my own contact experiences, it started with like a, a, a telepathic download you know, mm. if I could use those words and 
I, as soon as I heard the words come outside, I instantly knew like everything that was about to go down and that there was going to be a, a UFO outside. And I don't know, you know, again, I don't know how, but I instantly knew all this. So I ran outside and this is after something of an NDE too, like the day after it was again, like you said, it wasn't a true NDE. It was a trauma based uh, or a trauma induced OBE because I was in this pretty bad car wreck came out mm. unscathed. Um, but lost consciousness and had this whole experience. And so, but when I went outside, there was this like hexagonal craft and it was humming. And I had this Kundalini experience. There was like electricity flowing through my whole body. And I I had this um, feeling of euphoria and and complete connected to the universe and all this. And um, so it was incredible. And that's how I could kind of relate in a, in a way to the rising and passing through something like a contact experiences. Yeah. Um, so I, to me, a lot of these experiences where all of a sudden consciousness is profoundly al- consciousness is profoundly altered. We seem to have unusual abilities, perceptual abilities, clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience, etc. The various clairs um, and contact with entities, having profound visions, out of body travel. That's all to me A and P territory. Um, that's yeah. kind of put it all in that same kind of big basket. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's fascinating. And so going along with, with people, you know, having contact experiences and, and that relating to insight stages, I had also heard you talk before about maybe people having um, attainments or, or at least various different insight stages or experiences kind of just going through uh, like regular life, just walking about, not yeah. necessarily sitting for 10 days and doing a hundred mm-hmm. hours of meditation, and having insight experiences. So what to you... family members of mine, one was walking down the street in New York and all of a sudden, yeah, no meditative background or anything. Yeah. Cause again, so. going back for me, um, when I was younger, I would have all these kind of different, um, I guess you can say insight experiences, but, um, on, on various different levels. And I, I, I had no idea. I mean, I knew that these experiences were profound in their own way. And, um, but I never, until I came across, you know, different work later on Buddhism and meditation, I never realized that they were what could be called insight stages. Uh, that's part of why I find your work so fascinating because you have highlighted these maps and it's like, oh my God, I, I know that I've been there. And, you know, you can kind of see where you've been and kind of where, what else there is out there. So um, what are some other of the awakening stages or some of the insight stages? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I'll just give you, a, I'll, I'll give you the, the three or four minute version. So the first one is called mind and body. This is what mindfulness makes unbelievably good use of. And it's the ability to see thoughts as objects. So the first thing you can actually see thoughts as objects rather than just being totally caught and identified with them. And this gives you the space to analyze feelings and analyze your stories and analyze your history and have some sort of, sort of objectivity on your thoughts, whatever that means, sort of a ridiculous concept. But anyway, it's still subjective. But um, uh, and uh, then the next one is, if you've ever been meditating and it felt like it was messing up your breath and your attention was messing your breath up and kind of interfering with it or making it stop or go strangely and attention and breath were having this weird sort of almost mechanical or robot-like relationship, then that's a stage called cause and effect. And it can be involved sort of weird movements and muscles tensions and pastoral asymmetries and people are like well, i think my 
posture straight. And then the three characteristic <laughs> stage involves the beginning of like what we call hard pain generally is like the, the like two or three days into a meditation retreat or just sometimes people get into this on their own, even in daily life. And it's like, there's it's like, why does this hurt so much? Why does meditating hurt so much? Like what in the world? Why does my back, my neck, my jaw, my rhomboid and trapezius muscles, my psoas muscles, my knees, like what is up with this? And then if you can get past that stage, people can hopefully get to the arising and passing away stage, which involves all this energetic stuff. And it might be super mild. So for some people, the A and P is like just literally like little subtle tingles or little subtle chills. It's nothing super impressive. And for other people, it can be months and fireworks and blazing lights and out of body stuff. And, you know, I talked to this one person who had like hours of going to realm after realm after realm and having these incredibly powerful interactions with what seemed like deities or dewas is what they were calling them. You know, like this thing's, its range is incredibly wide from just like little tingly stuff to and um, it could go on for seconds to months. So that's a whole thing. And some people, a lot of people like it, a few people don't. It could be very painful, like the, the classic one of a, um, a, a St. Teresa um, and when it felt like a spear was piercing through her heart and everything. If people are talking about chakras opening and cracking and energy blockages blowing through and stuff, that's all this territory. Anyway, people have been describing it a long time across a lot of traditions. Then the next one is something called dissolution, which is where everything seems to be falling away or dissolving. And suddenly you're like, where's all my meditative capability? Why I was, I could sit for hours dissecting the breath into little particles. Where did that all go? Like, why can't I get up off the couch? Like, what is wrong with me? And then the next ones are fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance and reobservation, collectively referred to in technical uh, commentarial Buddhism as the knowledges of suffering or dukkanyanas, but um, also referred to by those of us who are sort of perennialists, again, some people don't like this, my apologies to them, um, <laughs> as the dark night of the soul, the you know, descent into the underworld of the hero's journey. Like, and once you start making those parallels, suddenly there's a staggering amount of literature you can draw on to gain advice, normalization, you know, stuff that may match your experience, stuff that may fit with your religious tradition you're coming from or whatever your own aesthetics, because, you know, this is talked about by mystics all over the world for many thousands of years. And then if you can get through that, then um, there's uh, opening out in equanimity. And this can involve just like the A&P, which can involve powerful feelings of unity and connection and equanimity. This can also, but it's usually less fireworky, usually not Kundalini-ish at all, but also can involve very silent, peaceful, tranquil, formless states, can also involve profound visions and strange things like just space becoming like you know, white stillness and, and, you know, vast boundless spaces and vast, you know, fields of infinite consciousness and things all just disappearing. And, you know, the feeling of attention and awareness and everything synchronizing and great connections to cosmic consciousness and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, people describe this a wide variety of ways. And then I actually, the first time I got stream entry off this, I got into the strange reverie of visualizing a God gerbil whatever that is, but it's this <laughs> gerbil that of course was God, but somehow it had forgotten it was God and it was running on this gerbil wheel, ha, 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 you know, and it had forgotten it was also big God, which meant, you know, universal consciousness, which, which meant my consciousness, which meant the gerbils, and they all converged. Everything disappeared, synchronized, reappeared, and I've never been the same since. So anyway, so that's a short story of like insight stuff, like, but that, that's a super superficial treatment. And I apologize for that, but you can read more about it in my book and all the books it references, like A Path with Heart and, you know, Mahasi Saidao's work. And there's lots of other books on this stuff. Um, you know, and if you augment it with additional tech, like 
considerations of realms and chakras and various other energetic systems, then you get a more complete picture. And then if you read the NDE literature or the conversion literature of the Catholics, or, you know, then you start getting an even more complete picture. And then you, anyway, so there's a lot of uh, ways to fill in what is a ridiculously complex topic. And that was probably more than three minutes, but anyway, sorry. That's Hopefully great. That That's was great. interesting. And, uh, you know, I want to point out that, you know, those insights, insight stages, I think are so helpful because, you know, people who have had contact or UFO experiences um, also seem to have these like highs and lows, you know, you yeah. have this kind of traumatic, uh, you know, at first it's a high, like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And then there's Paranoia a low and confusion you know, yeah. and frustration with worldly things and difficult relations with family members and wanting to quit your job and go off on a spiritual <laughs> quest and what, and, or chase aliens or whatever it is. Yeah. So the problem is, <laughs> This is cyclic. So this looks like, you know, bipolar disorder and I actually think some reasonable uh, amount of bipolar disorder is in fact just insight gone awry, maybe all of it. That's a whole nother topic. But anyway, yeah. um, and it doesn't mean we don't need to functionally figure out how to help these people, but there may be ontological or, you know, epistemological different ways to, to frame things. Um, and so uh, yeah, and so from the high of the A and P, the the dark night follows the arising and passing away like thunder follows lightning, and um, it's super common after these experiences to feel ungrounded, otherworldly, like spaced out, sort of disgusted, frustrated, creepy, paranoid, etc. And that the cycle of practice has been observed in myself and my friends and my, you know, uh, you know, the community I'm lucky enough to be a part of you know, countless thousands of people I've talked to about the cycles. This is just part of the human experience for some people and why some people enter into this territory and cross the arising and passing away, as we call it, and get on the ride, as we call it, and this whole process of sort of spiritual puberty activates. And for some people, it doesn't. We have no idea, but this is like what William James would call the twice born or, you know, the, the people who have seen the light, you know, or had their conversion, whatever lots of ways to look at this, but the, the basic sort of physiology of it as like spiritual peak, which may be distressing or incredibly powerful or a mix of both and very magical and all the stuff to crash, to massive life disruption, to maybe eventually find some balance to then cycle back through that around that again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Um, learning how to deal with that has been the stuff of the last uh, 30, how long ago? 37 years of my life. Um, and so... Uh, with most of my friends on the strange journey. So yeah, that's, uh, but luckily the insight theory actually describes quite well, predictively, why there are these weird emotional highs and lows. Yeah. And, and what to do about them. So it's not only predictive, ah. it's also proscriptive and normalizing. It's just the simple fact of going, oh, maybe it's normal to be like crashing, you know, a days or weeks after my first OBE. Yeah, like actually it is. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, that's part of another reason why I found some of your work so fascinating. Where, where are some of these, like, say, the prescriptive um, uh, pieces of data? Because I know that some people after experiences, like, they hit the, the, uh, the dark night and they're, like, stuck there. I've seen yeah. it happen to people, um, especially after contact experiences. They kind of lose their grounding. And sometimes I've seen people, at least for years that I've known, they, they never quite make it out of there. You yeah, know? no, once it in, started, you're in it. And then you just have yeah. to figure out how to grow up and wake up and become mature and functional in the face of it. How can people do that? Or where can they find like good information on that? Wow. So 
the first book Not I clinically. Generally, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. And right. I seriously, yeah. I mean, my, my life's goal these days, my primary life goal is um, to help my colleagues in medicine and the world of emergency psychiatry or whatever, to just be way better, to, to come up to their own full potential of how much they can help add value to these people's care and not unfortunately be actively not so helpful. Um, and so where can you find good information? So you can find good information um, in the transpersonal literature, some of it. So I would recommend um, The Stormy Search for the Self by the Groffs. I would recommend A Path with Heart by Jack Cornfield. That's all kind of in the same sort of uh, thing. Um, normalizing books like uh, Breaking Open um, uh, uh, is, a, is a cool one. It just came out. It's it's a fun read. And there's lots of these. Am I bipolar or waking up? You know, am I, you know is this enlightenment or am I losing my mind? So there, there's a yeah. bunch of these kinds of books. But I, I think, um, and then of course my book, I go into a lot of my own detail on this, which is just one take on it, right? And from a sort of a pretty technical insight meditatory point of view, just because that was the point of view I was coming from when I wrote it. Um, but it, you know, it's just one piece of a, a very large puzzle. And at this point, all of us are just basing this on expert opinion, our own experiences, the orthodoxies and hopefully helpful tech of our meditative and spiritual traditions that we've managed to run into and found usually useful for ourselves or know somebody who's found them very helpful. Um, but uh, yeah, th there are a number of good books on chakras and Kundalini awakening and stuff that can be very helpful. Um, uh, yeah, there's, so there's a lot out there. Um, and it's just a question of what works with your own aesthetics, what what hits you. And, you know, it's funny, like some people will read the same thing written by two different authors and it's basically the same tech and one they're just like, oh, I just can't stand them. They're like, oh, yeah. my God, that so resonated with me. And so yeah. you've also kind of got to find not only the, the meditative, spiritual life hacking technologies it help you do this well, but something that for whatever reason connects with you at some other aesthetic, deep, you know, resonant level. And that's, that's unfortunately for people involves a lot of their own experimentation. So some people find myself, you know, you know, overly dry and technical and they read MCTB and they're like, oh, I just can't do that. It's got numbers and things. And other people are like, oh my God, that's exactly what I needed. And, you know, it's not one or the other. It's just, that's the, the you know, how people connect to it or don't, which is fine, which is why I reference a whole lot of other people. And then books like, um, you know, really simple stuff like uh, Mindfulness in Plain English by Bhante Gunaratana and its section on the hindrances, or for a future to be possible by Thich Nhat Hanh that just talks about good behavior and staying functional or the works of Pema Chodron, um, like, you know, when things fall apart uh, and, and books like that. Uh, so there, you know, this is again, showing my own influences, but there's tons of cool stuff out there in other traditions that I'm just not as aware of because there's no way to read all the literature and all this stuff these days. There's too much, um, which is a great thing in some ways, but it's also frustrating if you're trying to sort through it all and figure out what might work for you. Yeah. Yeah, and luckily for me, um, before I had some of my later experiences, I was already um, meditating for, for a few years. So hmm. I was lucky enough to already have that grounding aspect where yeah. and, yeah. and I saw a compliment, you know, it was comp complimentary to it in a sense, because I kind of was able to sort through it and use that kind of uh, like Buddhist investigation model to kind of break down the experience and kind of parse out um, what my own thoughts were compared to what actually happened. Yeah. So um, what have you found most helpful? Cause you've been looking at this stuff for a while. Uh, just, I, I mean, wow. You know, I'm kind of like you, I've, I've experimented with a lot of different meditation, but I, I like a lot of, um, well, Zen is really good, you know, in, in the basic sense, 
but that the just the the essence of the the Buddhist model of investigation or contemplation. So uh, vachara, self inquiry, and um, any kind of deep meditation like that, that where you're able to again objectively, you know, to whatever whatever extent you can look at the experience and kind of detach yourself from a little of it and um, see it for what it is rather than where your mind is trying to take it. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Sure. Yeah. What, you know, from your own experiences and um, your own kind of path, let's say, what, what models do you think would be helpful for that? Like even just your, your own phenomenology experiences, how, what, what helped you through analyzing that or, or coming to grips with it? Well, A, I like the sort of extended advanced versions of the Theravada maps that have kind of arisen in the last hundred years, and particularly in the last 30 or so years um, in my little friend circles of advanced hyper-technical geeky Mahasi meditators, but that's just because I'm a geeky technical, you know, hype, you know, meditator who's very comfortable in like thinking in fractals and complicated numerological systems of, you know, and how various, you know, things might modify, like, you know, that's, that's just how my brain works. So that's what I like, but lots of people don't like that. And Zen would be like the far opposite extreme where (laughs) don't think about it. That's all just moksha. Like, you know, just pay attention to practice enlightenment as a natural unfolding thing or whatever, which is a totally cool counterbalance to all the weird geeky tech stuff I can get into. And then um, let's see here. What have I found helpful? Actually, I'm going to go back to like way more fundamentally what I have found helpful in the face of all the weird, because, you know, I I practice magic just by way of full disclosure. I've studied in a whole bunch of Western and Eastern systems and tried to put these things together. You know, I like some people are going to think that's kind of weird, but like, you know, and I've had all kinds of strange magical experiences where, you know, this was the experience. These were the sensations, the colors, the qualities, the textures, the shapes, the forms, the sounds, the energies in the body, the mind states or whatever. But then what I found most helpful, much more fundamentally in the face of all the strange, is I'm a, I've come to the conclusion that I'm basically a strict ontologically agnostic empirical empirical pragmatist. And what that means <laughs> is, um, and sort of informed by chaos magic and the ability of chaos magic to pick up and put down ontologies like one would put down, say, a hooded robe or a wand. Um, and th- what that means is to really actually This is a fascinating practice and to be able to reinterpret experiences through a lot of different lenses, whether they be sort of scientific materialist or archetypal or some religious framework or psychological or just pragmatic from like a sort of a CBT, how do I stay functional today point of view or, or some, you know, various countless other various lenses you could apply to these sorts of things. And to be able to to sort of have a bunch of those in the toolbox and then be able to empirically go, okay, which lens is helping today? Which which of these lenses empirically, you know, like in my own experimentation. So I use, that's why I say empirical, empirical. First, in terms of like my own experience and second, in terms of experimentation. Okay, I tried this lens. This is what happened in my real life. And then I'm a pragmatist. So like, I, I like to look at, does this help? Like, so like, was this, this lens helpful? Was this ontology held loosely helpful? Was an ontology held tightly helpful? Was, 
um, how did that impact my experience and can I reproduce that? So if I go back to this other ontology, does that reproducibly produce certain effects? And if I go back to this other you know, way of viewing things, does that produce other effects? Or if I do this other practice, does that help? Does this help? So ontologically agnostic empirical, empirical pragmatism um, with a willingness to sort of be very um, ontologically playful, really, I think that's what's been most helpful such that I could sort of code switch and move from, you know, doing some magical practice to walking into a Southern conservative ER as an attending where none of that is going to be what's going on, like, <laughs> unless I run into a patient, in which case that, you know, they're bringing that to the table. And that's what I'm suddenly seeing them for. And then I can like switch back into that hyper selectively, but couched in language that works in my very conservative medical context. And then, you know, switch suddenly back out of that to a, you know, you know, very sort of biochemical, biochemical social model of, you know, medical care, um, and then, you know, go home and then walk into this room where I happen to be sitting, you know, and see the entity, the glowing entity laying on my bed. And at that moment, just go like, I don't have the time for this and literally just lay down <laughs> in the space it's occupying, which it seemed to not like, and then it just sort of dissolved and go to sleep, you know? Yeah. And so that's like, <laughs> Because I had to get, you know, sleep for work the next day. And I just didn't yeah, have sure. to have to deal with some kind of thing that happened to show up in my bed. Um, you know, whatever it was, you know, vision, you know, manufactured by my own mind or a product of the matrix or part of the dream of Vishnu or whatever you want to call this or alien or, you know, interdimensional consciousness or whatever, you know, pick your favorite label for yeah. whatever thing I saw. I, you know, I didn't ask, even if it told me, I'm not sure I would believe it. Um, and then, yeah. you know, like... <laughs> and then get up and go back to work. Yeah. So and like, that, you know, like, so that's what I found most helpful because otherwise this stuff can make something of a mess of people's lives. And that can sometimes be a fascinating mess and a really fun mess and a super cool, like my life is a mess, kind of fun mess. But, you know, um, sometimes being functional is just more fun. Yeah. Well, and that kind of gets me into the idea of, um, you know, forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, but attainment and integration and I, I think I've heard you mention that because I, I there's something about these experiences where you need an integration phase to kind of yeah. figure out where it fits and what it means. And I mean, sometimes or I can what take, it doesn't mean or what it yeah. doesn't have to mean or that it yeah. doesn't have to mean anything. Or yeah. maybe some meaning is incredibly helpful or maybe some meaning is incredibly destructive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's another important point. Um also, you know, something else you just kind of pointed out was, you know, like whatever you want to call it, because we have these, uh, all these kind of various experiences, um, you know, UFOs, uh, extraterrestrials, interdimensionals. Um, do you, how do you, how do you look at all those, the kind of phenomenology and the phenomena with all these kind of, you know, there's all these different theories too. There's the theory about time travelers. This is us from the future coming to help ourselves and, you know, the extraterrestrial hypothesis where it's just physical beings like us coming from other planets. And then you have interdimensionals. It's like, oh, well, these beings are coming from a different dimension, whatever that means. <laughs> and, um, you know, so how do you look at that when you have uh, like a variety of these phenomena and seeming entities? Yeah. So I think those points of view are all tremendous fun. Um, you know, from the far extreme on one end of people are just crazy and making this stuff up, you know, as fraudsters to the far extreme of the other end, or there are physical aliens among us and interdimensional beings and walk-in starseeds and 
you know, day was, and this is perennialist stuff that's been described since the beginning of people recording history, and they built the pyramids, and they, you know, <laughs> like, you know, it's funny. I was in Egypt looking at these stones, no way, look, looking at the pyramids, and going. There is no fucking way they did this with all my hammers. Like, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. no, like that is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Like if you had yeah. armies of millions of people, no, still no way. Like I, that's <laughs> yeah. anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Like I've been to Machu Picchu. I've been to Chichen Itza and Palenque. It oh, was man. very hard when in Palenque not to look at the sarcophagus lid and think it was some dude flying a spaceship. Once you see yeah. it, you can't unsee it. You know, I'm yeah. like, you know, so like, I, I get it. Like, I get how powerfully compelling this the stuff is. You know, I just watched uh, the phenomenon over the weekend, and it, it, like all these incredibly well respected, uh, you know, generals and government administrators and people that seem so genuine. You know, uh, that that whole side is incredibly compelling and powerful. And I, I feel the, the the swirl and the pull of it because, oh, my God. Right. You know, yeah. like, yeah, the evidence, like the, the the photographs. And I've had my own experiences. So this is one I don't think I've ever told anybody. But when I was watching um, uh, Close Encounters, the fifth kind, I was I was like, oh, my God, wait a second. This experience I had. So. It's Hurricane Fran. It's hitting the triangle area where I was living at the time. And this would have been, I guess, 96 or seven, somewhere in there, because I know by the apartment I was living in, um, it's probably 97, I would guess. And so, and by this point, six pine trees this big around have, cra have crashed or are about to crash into our roof. I can't remember the exact sequence. And the winds are just crazy. And like, you know, it, it's there's lightning all over the place. And there are little mini tornadoes that just like, you know, tore up oak trees and threw them around. And it's probably two in the morning. And we can't sleep. I finally actually do manage to go to sleep, weirdly enough, in the middle of this, because I was just tired and I knew the next day was going to be a long one of picking up debris off of cars and things and figuring out what was left in the wreckage. Um, but I looked out the window and I saw this thing. And I saw it for maybe 15 seconds. And it was, I don't know, like a little bit bigger than a beach ball, probably about two or three probably about three feet across almost. And it was green and crackling with brilliant green energy. And it was just hovering like 10 feet outside of the window. Yeah. And it was unbelievably loud. It was like <laughs> this horrible electrical crackling sound. And it's just kind of hovering there and floating. And then all of a sudden it's gone. Yeah, and, and this was a light that was illuminating through the window. It was illuminating the trees. You could see the shadows from it, like, and it was. And I've had, you know, sometimes I thought, well, another A and P like thing because crackling energy and bright lights and stuff is very A and P esque territory from a sort of a meditative point of view. But I was rewatching this. I'm like, that has that. Like, this is yeah. what these people are calling encounters with stuff, right? And it had this impossible quality to it it had the quality of there's no way this thing can be like you know i have a lot of training in, in physics and you know i was part you know most of the training in electrical engineering and i've done you know a lot of fancy math about you know electromagnetic field stuff and applied maxwell's equations and i'm like 
this thing makes no electromagnetic sense. Like there is no way. Yeah. Like and and so I've called it ball lightning is what I've generally called it because sort of the ball lightning phenomena of seeing some sort of sphere of what appears to be lightning or something. Um, clearly somehow ties in but when i was watching the ce5 stuff i was like oh well you know who knows anyway yeah. so but i can tell you i had the experience i don't know what it is but it was one of these like striking things in my life that would be very hard to forget unless i had severe brain damage um <laughs> that's yeah that's incredible and a lot of times you know ufo encounters are you know a lot of times if there's like a, a, nat a natural disaster uh, there's UFOs somewhere around. That's, you know, that's a, another interesting correlation. Um, but uh, CE5 is something I'm, I'm very heavily involved in. I've been involved with it for since around 2008, 2009. And I've had some incredible um, CE5 experiences. And the, the interesting thing about CE5 and contact in general as a bigger picture is that, um, you know, some of these insight um experiences are very subjective but the th the interesting thing about ufos is that there's an objective or empirical quality to it um, i've had encounters with a whole flurry of activity like mind-blowing uh you think that they're going to announce the you know disclosure tomorrow kind of thing and my entire family was there and they're all like oh my god what you know what is you know they, they had a sense of what it is because they knew what I, I was doing, but they were all there to see it. And um, that's really what I think is profound about um, the UFO subject is that it kind of bridges the kind of um, conventional or physical and the spiritual tangibly, because there's a, a tangible experience as far as we can tell. There's sometimes biological effects that occur. There's, uh, you know, there's radar, there's sometimes recordings of these objects, yet it, it, has, it gives you this like paradigm shift, breaks your reality down, and you're like, wow, I know now that like this universe is, is much greater than, than we're conventionally told. So that's, that's one of the reasons I find the, um, the UFO subject so fascinating in general. And I think that it's kind of um, a stepping stone to, to kind of explore yourself and these, these deeper realms and, and, and think, think about things like awakening and, and enlightenment. Because for me personally, a lot of these experiences are, are correlated with my own um, path of awakening, if you want to call it like that. And there's, there's an interesting guy, uh, Jacques Vallée, who he helped create ARPANET, the precursor to the internet. He also uh, worked on the software that mapped Mars. So very astute guy, scientific, very bright. Uh, he's, he's the guy who the, does the mineral analysis of found the material, debris, material yeah. analysis. Yeah. 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 And he also um, was the executive producer of the phenomenon I saw. Yes. Is that right? Yes. And so. he was in that film with Dr. Gary Nolan, who's another brilliant scientist. I actually wrote an article with Gary Nolan on some of his work oh, that cool. was analyzing the, um, the parts of the brain um, which he he thinks, based on his work, and there was science done on this, that um, in individuals that have UFO experiences or the experiences with orbs and entities, there's a hyperactivity in this part of the brain. And this work was done at Stanford University. And uh, I'm going to be writing another article on this soon. Um, Harvard got involved too, and they're looking at the same thing to, to kind of test his experiment, so to say. 
Well, actually, I'm going to be going up to Harvard. Uh, I'm part of the people designing and helping to figure out how to do and helping to fund and fundraise for a study at Harvard, where it's going to be a bunch of us, you know, meditators who have some technical skill, all of whom have had some of these kinds of experiences. And we're all, you know, going to be spending a bunch of time in a seven Tesla fMRI and with wires on our heads doing an EG, and then comparing us shifting through various altered states of consciousness, which we would call jhanas or jnanas, and various people yeah. would call various other things. And to see, yeah, how much signal is there and what can you detect and what are the similarities and differences. And, and um, from a mental health point of view, actually has implications like because if you get good enough at the stuff, you can learn to very rapidly shift between various states and very fluidly and very transparently and easily, which from a mental health point of view is like something of a superpower, but from a meditative point of view is just something you're kind of expected to learn to do routine, <laughs> as a technical yeah. meditator. And so, yeah, so if you're out there and trying to figure out how to navigate this stuff, become a really good meditator. And then there is this, there are shifts that can happen in your consciousness that seem to be, you know, as permanent as anything is sort of permanent, but where all of a sudden, like layers of mind that previously would move through very slowly can move through very rapidly and transparently and fluidly. And that helps tremendously, actually, in terms of relating to all of this kind of territory. Absolutely, I agree. And um, getting back to Jacques Vallée, he actually proposed this, this model where um, whatever the UFO intelligence represents nowadays has actually been with us um, as far back as humanity. And it's, you know, gone under fairies and gnomes and whatever else. And it's the same intelligence and it's kind of um, like guiding us and nudging us into like a more, almost like a universal uh, education program you know it's 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 a it's a it's a he he kind of described it you know this is just one of his theories as like a framework to helping sentient beings evolve you know so i thought that was fascinating excellent um, yeah that I, I very much like that um in terms of the aesthetics of that hypothesis anyway unfortunately it misses the the challenging entity experiences right yeah right and then there's the question is that just like are they just teaching us a lesson the hard way or are they actually malignant <laughs> yeah. entities right yeah that, that's you know these well, kinds I, of questions I, i'm not sure yeah. the answer is so straightforward i'm prepared to argue it either way <laughs> yeah and you know that's the thing i like about Jacques Vallée is he's he's not saying this is the answer he has he puts out kind of a bunch of different ideas and it's almost like a thought experiment and and because of his work, I mean, a lot of people were nabbed on to this is just aliens from outer space and him putting out these different kinds of theories, kind of like opening everybody's minds to saying, OK, wait, this is this stuff is some of this stuff is way stranger. Some of this stuff has been re reported as spiritual experiences thousands of years ago and all those kind of things. So um, it's, it's I think, more of like an opening the mind kind of thing. And he's pointing, trying to point to different frameworks to say, OK, maybe it's not just you know, physical aliens. But um, in my own opinion, I think that at the end of the day, we're probably dealing somewhere, else, not with everything that's reported as the UFO phenomenon, but maybe a fraction of that has to do with actual, uh, maybe some kind of extraterrestrial intelligence in one way or another, um, just because there's too much that, that would suggest that. And, you know, using Occam's razor, um, you know, some of these other theories just are way more out there, you know, than, than just like, oh, it's extraterrestrials that found a way to dimension hop or do whatever they do 
to to visit here you know either, whether it's either just them or their technology in some way you know um sure. but getting into the jhanas i think that is really cool um so for some people that are listening to this might not know the jhanas could be called concentration states kind of like in a dumbed down version i guess you can probably explain it uh, better daniel but some of those jhanas are actually really useful if you're going to be doing like ce5 work right yeah. so if you're going to go out in the field and um try to have a peaceful experience with the ufo intelligence some of these jhanas and concentration states are actually helpful utilizing to help you do that you know and of course meditation is going to help you learn your way through and attain some of these jhanas what do you think about that Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what they were doing back in the day when you read the old books like the Vasudhi Maga and the Vimudi Maga and the Fruits of the Homeless Life, which is one of the suttas um, of the Buddhist literature. You find that way back, that was how you did magic. So, or how you had, you know, entity encounters or how you traveled to other realms. So the standard formula is you make the bases clean. You know, you hopefully have good uh, sila or shila or morality practice and ethics right? You have a clean consciousness and a pure heart or something. You sit down at the foot of a tree, you do some concentration-y practice, you get your concentration really strong, and then you incline your mind to the powers, right? So, um, and that's that's Buddhist magic 101, essentially. And then, you know, there, there are endless conversations about people flying through the sky and talking to dewas and seeing entities, and they would call them dewas back then, so which is gods or goddesses, or actually the, this whole long categorization of other types of entities, right? So they had their own catalog of what these things were, names for them. And, um, you know, and then, so that was how this was done. And so, of course, and those are the experiments that I've replicated. So a bunch of my um, when I go on retreat, I'm generally doing those kinds of practices where you're doing a, an intensive visualization practice, an intensive mantra practice, and those that makes you more likely to hear and see things, which from a mainstream psychiatry point of view is like, why would you intentionally hallucinate? And from a power <laughs> point of view is like, of course, this is how you gain powers, and they're awesome and interesting and fascinating to explore if you can not freak out in the face of them, which is the big trick. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you're prone to freaking out in the face of weird experiences, maybe not for you, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, make your own call. But uh, for those of us who appreciate these kinds of things and consider them skillful as the old Buddhist texts, they clearly considered these skillful and the Buddha would praise people who had various powers and deep jhanic abilities and, and could talk to, you know, entities or whatever. Um, you know, that's why we do this. And so like, you know, that's my idea of a, of a ridiculously good time these days. And um, though certainly not without its uh, risks. And so when we go on these kinds of retreats and do these kinds of practices, which, you know, if you could look up www.firecasina.org and you can read all about our adventures and reports of what it's like to go on these retreats where we would get our concentration crazy strong to the point that we can draw symbols in the air and travel to other realms and stuff that seem as real as this one. Um, some people anyway, sometimes. Um, and, you know, but that's why we do this. And so the jhanas are the fundamental basis of Buddhist magic, basically just period. So I didn't even know that. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow, man. I, you know, I'd love to do a CE5 with you someday, man. That would be epic. 
Actually, I'm coming up by New York, I think, in June. So somewhere around the middle of uh, June is when I'm coming back from the Harvard study and being scanned. I'll be all kinds of powered up because I always spent days and days and days meditating hardcore with wires on my head and, and in various scanners. So it would be tremendous fun if you want me to swing by New York and we could go out in a field somewhere and be all kinds of coronavirus safe. And you know, <laughs> definitely for sure. Yeah. So New York uh, is New York is super safe, actually, by the way. I mean, cool. considering. You know, we took a lot of precautions. Hmm. Um, so, you know, regarding, um, you know, the powers uh, in, you know, CE5 uh, is kind of a broad term. So Dr. Stephen Greer made it the most popular for sure. And he kind of framed it in a way that's, um, I don't know how to say it. Yeah, I Less just downloaded the app yesterday, but I haven't had a chance to go through it yet. Yeah, it's, it's kind it's, of a noob in this in yeah. this framework but well you know i'd argue against that because <laughs> your background in phenomenology is is like you're you're already ahead of the game if you're into all that stuff <laughs> meditation you know the powers and all those kind of things tie into this so so naturally i mean it's it's at the core of the work so um getting to the powers you know again dr stephen greer kind of made it popular he made it less believey he tried to make it more technical because there were actually other people like um, mission rama is what they're called with sixto paswell's doing this kind of same similar thing in the 1970s in, in south america and peru and they were doing you know fasting um concentration exercises and they were having the same results and so yeah it's vision quest right i mean you know this is not new this is not new tech, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And they were having very good encounters with actual, the, the local media came by and recorded some of the objects. So it was really cool. And they had a lot of success for a time. But uh, um, so they had their own version of doing it. Stephen Greer had has his own kind of version of doing it, which includes the powers because part of his, um, the CE5 process that Dr. Stephen Greer allegedly, as he says, he co-created it with these entities um, that you do your meditation, you still your mind. You know, he's very Vedic. He was a, he was a TM teacher for Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Um, so that's kind of his approach. And, he, you know, if you go to his training, he teaches you the, his mantra and, and all that. But you still your mind and then you remote view. Um, that's, you know, and, and do something called coherent thought sequencing. So he, and, and his own approach you know, he references location data to where you are. Yeah. You know, he, he references the cities, you know, um, from the, the yoga sutras of Patanjali yeah. where the, you're utilizing the powers to, to kind of have this contact experience. So um, getting to that, what are your, what's your familiarity with um, the powers and, and um, contact with these other entities? So I've had a bunch of entity contacts over the years, uh, particularly depending on how far you want to go back and how you might, how much you want to include dream life and or lucid dreaming and or astral travels, obviously, and all that. Um, and I've had a, a bunch of them. I'm not sure I even know where to begin, but um, yeah, I think the the most important thing is that they've all kind of been different, all these different qualities, like some yeah. of them just sort of 
like fish spirits that is hard to, are hard to relate to. <laughs> like, you know, I've seen spirits of jellyfish in my front yard, I guess, from when this must have been an ocean or something. Yeah. You know, maybe there, I've seen ghosts. Uh, I've, um, I've heard various, you know, things telling me stuff. I've had um, various energetic experiences that seem to convey in them some sense of intelligence or presence or power. Um, the first time I traveled out of body and had my consciousness, all that stuff explode was all triggered by um, a what appeared to be like a cartoon witch riding on a black horse and shot me with a wand. Yeah. So I actually think of that as some ways, like many times thought that was the entity that kind of like tipped me over into this stuff. Thank you. Um, even though it was weird <laughs> at the time. And yeah. um, uh, so, you know, but that's just sort of one interpretation. I'm also super comfortable like flipping back to a totally materialist perspective of just those were just experiences. They were created by my mind or a mind or the mind or whatever, um, depending on where you want to draw those lines yeah. um, and how you would know one from the other. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, and um, but I've always wondered, again, I'm a pragmatist. So the question has always been like, what's the value in relating to these things various ways? What are the values in holding various ontologies? And what is the value? How does that then help or improve my life? I've also had past life experiences, which were super compelling, where I seemed to be all kinds of various things in previous lives, some of which had remarkable interdimensional powers and capabilities, incredibly long-lived, vastly more powerful consciousnesses than anything I have now. Um, and so I've had a personal sense of that helped expand the range of what seems to make some sort of internal paradigmatic sense of what kind of beings might be possible and how vastly advanced their intelligence might be in comparison to ours. I also um, have had experiences of entities that I don't think were nice. Like, yeah, that if if they're if they're all like they just love us and want us to evolve, <laughs> that aspect yeah. was hidden from me. That doesn't mean <laughs> yeah. you know maybe this is like just sort of alien tough love and needed to teach me a lesson in paranoia and fear or you know magical defense or whatever. But um, just you know like. Uh, it's also it's a those paradigms where it's all just like nicey nicey are a bit of a stretch for me um that said i have plenty of friends who are like super into like you know the grays versus the federation versus the pleiadians yeah. and you know like you know like yeah. um that and that also when i hear that i just go uh, uh, it's possible it's that organized and sort yeah. of mundane and they care about us that much something in this this aesthetics i sometimes find a little off-putting yet I can yeah. totally get where those th kinds of ideas and things come from based on experiences I've had. So yeah. if that gives you, but that's just me, right? This is just one dude. Like I'm not saying any of this is right or what you should believe. I'm just kind of almost at this point kind of freestyling on my own limitations as much as anything. Yeah. I mean, that's all any of us can do. And I think, to, yeah. you, know, you know, first of all, you know, as above, so below. So we kind of have to extrapolate a little and say you know maybe the universe is kind of uh at least in some way like an extrapolation there's good there's bad um you know but i think that you know i want to go into kind of like 
you know, we see all this kind of disclosure stuff happening now, right? Disclosure is a little far. Uh, You know, it's what we call in the UFO field as confirmation. So we're getting this confirmation now from like the Pentagon that there's, you know, there are what they're calling UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. And, uh, you know, we don't know what they are. Maybe it's foreign tech, but it's super advanced and it's interacting with our military and has for a while. And they have, you know, pretty good evidence for it. Um, what are your, what are your general thoughts on that? There's, I mean, the amount of that is so large and the amount of documents so large in the amount of the attention this has received so large and the number of sources so large, uh, if it's a disinformation campaign, it is an impressive one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like a yeah. plus guys, <laughs> you know, um, I'll just give it to them for this. Right. Like, <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> you nailed it. Um, you know, and to sustain it that long across that many sources and that many governments and that many locations and that many modalities, like, wow, that, yeah. that, that requires some, like then their <laughs> next level conspirators, right? Yeah. Even beyond what I'm usually willing to grant them. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, okay, that's <laughs> impressive. So that would, that would astound me. Um, it, would, it would be more astounding that they pulled off that kind of a global disinformation campaign on that scale for that long that well than there were real bits of ship debris and, you know, real bodies and real contacts and that they have some sort of more sophisticated knowledge of this stuff. Um, yeah, I kind of, be- you know, I, this is just, I kind of believe some of the frustrated government officials when they say we just couldn't get any farther. Like that wouldn't yeah. surprise yeah. me that corporations yeah. had sequestered the stuff or some deep state actors had, you know, walled themselves off from like these little passing presidents that come and go, but we can't have them blowing our thing. Yeah. That that would not surprise me. Like, I don't know that it's true, but, you know, I, I, I'm willing to entertain that as a reasonable possibility. Um, uh, you know, like if that helps you sort of give a sense of where I am. Like, I'm not like, again, I keep a very open mind about possibilities, but those I think would all be very reasonable things to think. Yeah. You know? And, um, and then know, the question is, what, what do you do with that? Like as a pragmatist, yeah. I then go, okay, so what do I do with that? I think see trying out a CE5 protocol sounds like a tremendously good time. Hopefully we'll get to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And then, you know, and that's part of why I got really interested in CE5 is because, you know, I had these experiences which were witnessed by other people which in, as far as I can tell, were physically real, you know, and, you know, you have the world telling you this doesn't exist, or at least the, the powers that be, the institutions. Um, Some aspects of the institutions, yeah, the institutions yeah. now are like a, a complicated patchwork yeah, of various yeah, contradictory sure. you, points of view. Yeah, because you, know? you can't group them all together. And then right. again, you have people like Lou Elizondo, who was the director of the ATIP program, who's coming out you know, he came out in 2017, said, I ran the program. This stuff is real. They're here. We don't know what it is, you know? So, and he's part of the DOD, you know, he was, he he retired to come out to tell his story about that. Right. um, Which is incredibly important. And, um, you know, we, we probably wouldn't be where we are now post 2017, if it wasn't for what he did, you know, and the other people that are kind of supporting him in the background, because it's not just him. There's people somewhere greenlighted, some of this saying and decided okay. not to kill him. Correct. Don't you mean know. to be paranoid, but you know, like. yeah, he's, he's, you know, out doing his thing. They didn't, you know, character assassinate him to the degree where to completely discredit him. 
you know, they could just character assassinate him and say, you know, he never worked for the, the Pentagon or, you know what I mean? Some, some way along those lines. Um, but we're, we're really coming together as a, as like a collective now, right. A collective consciousness. Um, and it seems that, you know, more is going to open up on this. And I think that's, um, has profound implications like that, the idea of disclosure, you know, the entire planet being aware of, um, of another intelligence engaging us. You know, I think that is going to, in a sense, be kind of like a global awakening. Not that, you know, we're going to be levitating the next day <laughs> together, but in the sense that it's going to be a transform, transformal uh, moment in history. And it will be like the beginning of, of, of the world opening its mind and kind of having some kind of like collective awakening. What do you think about that? I wonder about that. Okay, so A, I'm a bit of a cynic, should know this. Sure, B, sure. the notion that there are large, powerful creatures up there that could create worlds or create universes or created our universes or made us out of clay or are angels that could destroy cities or, you know, have leaped from, you know, India to Sri Lanka or whatever it is, like pick your favorite bit of myth and what or, yeah. you know, story or whatever it is, you know, I, I didn't mean myth in a pejorative way yeah, um, yeah. or a dismissive way. Um, and, and then like that was the vast majority of human history that lived in a realm of powerful gods and demons and things doing stuff, we sort of had this weird kind of pretend, okay, now nobody believes in these things, period, yeah. in the West, <laughs> which was totally not true. Like yeah. the vast majority of people still have something, if it's ghosts, if it's their lucky rabbit's foot, if it's, you know, that they talk to their dad, grandmother, or they would like, most people never, you know, became strict scientific materialists. And if you look at the world, like, you know, Islam, Catholicism, like other, you know, forms of Protestant Christianity, like Hinduism, like B Buddhism, the vast majority of the world has like pictures, you know, temples and dewas and ceremonies and rituals, right, which are basically just you know, reframe you know, another way of sort of looking at this kind of stuff if you want to be all perennialist about it, which I kind of do. Yeah. And then like, so how is going back to that and or acknowledging that that's been the vast majority of the last 150 years of experience and certainly was pretty much all of human experience before that, like how does that like suddenly create some revolution in consciousness? Well, I don't want to say what I mean, like, yeah, but I like, think you're going to have that whole thing. You're going to have the Duke and Giannis, right? <laughs> Globally. Uh, I don't know. Actually, some substantial portion of people never enter this territory, as far as I can tell. Well, and that's the thing. I think that subjects like this, you know, and even the, the current science talking about different dimensions and stuff, I think, you know, as, you know, if I wanted to be ultra speculative and, and, and point to the yugas, right, and say, okay, we're in Dwapara Yuga, according to Sri Yukteswar. And, and this yuga is like another phase of opening up the, you know, awakening the mind, even on a collective level. But, you know, according to him, it's not going to be for another few thousand years before we're in the silver age, which is a higher, uh, you know, yuga of enlightenment where most of the people on the planet will be on a higher level of awareness. Um, but generally, you know, and thus ignoring the people who think we're in the Kali Yuga vast destruction where we're going to yeah, wreck yeah. the planet and all kill ourselves yeah, and a few lone people will survive and hopefully, you know, and all meditative and spiritual technologies will kind of vanish and that eventually will be the re-rising of the skit again in some number of thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, that is. <laughs> so, and and there's, there's the argument for that. 
Um, <laughs> I don't, I, there are plenty of sure. environmentalist friends of mine who uh, um, that's kind of like where they are, right? So yeah, and yeah, yeah. maybe. What do you think? What do you think? You have you have uh, a speculative. Uh, yeah, I know you're I, a cynic. I'm a little bit of a cynic. I I unfortunately <laughs> I'm I'm, un, I'm underwhelmed by mainstream political will to do things that make sense. I'm yeah. Uh, I'm over. I'm somewhat overwhelmed by the degree to which tribal stupidity creates existential threat um, in mainstream Western industrialized politics. I'm moderately freaked out by the rising of the right, including the cosmic right, which seems, you know, uh, and plenty of you may be cosmic right. Apologies if I'm freaked out by your rising. Nothing personal. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so that whole thing has got me pretty nervous. Like, I'm pretty nervous. And uh, there, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Jack Vance. And if you haven't read Jack Vance, his stuff is just awesome. If, you know, if you're a Phil fan of like Philip K. Dick or anything like that, I would highly recommend checking out Vance, particularly if you like sci-fi, The Demon Princes. Um, and in The Demon Princes, there's uh, an an organization called the Institute, and it's the largest, um, you know, non-governmental organization in the galaxy at the time. And its sole job is to keep technology below the level at which a lone madman could destroy a planet. Okay, I heard about this. Yeah. And I think this is actually super important. And when I was watching these documentaries about these aliens, particularly when I was watching the school kids who were all talking about the alien that's telling them technology is bad, technology is clearly bad in the, hand, in the hands of a species where you have a powerful te enough technology that one lone lunatic could end life on the planet. I think we're pretty close to that, if not already there. <sighs> yeah. We may already be there. And uh so if there is some intergalactic organization as posited by Vance, whose job actually is to somehow wreck experiments, prevent us from getting flying cars or whatever, whatever, like, you know, why we think we don't have flying cars, et cetera. If there is some interfering intelligence that gets that we are too brutish, stupid, cruel, vicious, evil, and dumb to um, be allowed high tech stuff, like I get that, like, cause I look at, you know, politics in the news and I go like you would not want you know planet destruction capabilities in the hand of these people like and, and I include most world leaders in that category <laughs> like just to be yeah. straight up honest like the fact that they have buttons in their possession sh should terrify all of us um yeah you know so uh that's my somewhat cynical take on the whole thing yeah I, I'm an optimist by nature hmm. so that's my simply my hope that sounds like uh, more fun than my point of view. I don't know how my point of view helps me. It's not like I can change this mad system or suddenly <laughs> upgrade humanity's consciousness. I don't right. think I can. Right. I, maybe you can. Maybe you're you're partially doing trying, it trying. Right? Be a teeny um, little part of it. There you go. I mean, that's all you could do, right? You do your part. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, me and maybe the idea that the, you know they, you know, the UFO intelligence, you know, whether it's singular or multiple, probably multiple don't want to interfere with us because they don't think we can handle it. And they think it would, you know, make us go off the deep end further than we are. They probably look at us like it's an unstable society of, we know nearly go off the deep end all the time anyway. Like, yeah, you know, if, yeah. if you look at, you know, the whole Cuban missile crisis is literally a Russian sub commander, you know, refusal to end life on the planet that saved us. So thank you, Russian sub commander, you know, but like, <laughs> otherwise yeah. we'd be screwed, right? This is, and this is not conspiracy theory. This is just what literally happened in our history. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Mutual assured destruction. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane to think that we could end most of life on this planet at, yeah. you know, at the flick of a wrist. Our basic That's, level of functional ethics and intelligence is clearly unbelievably primitive period. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's dangerously, why think, stupidly, cruelly, viciously primitive. Yeah. And, and that's why I think that the idea of like these other entities that are advanced seemingly uh, is kind of hopeful in a way, because you, you know that it's like somebody made it, hopefully, right? We can assume <laughs> that they did not destroy their planet or hopefully not, or and they've continued to, you know, go through wherever they are with an advanced to a level of technology and hopefully morality and stuff that advanced that be so i hope so <laughs> um you know and i'm i'm inclined to think that somebody's done it right somebody out there has had to have done it the right way you know or you know well, individual extent. people in small groups have gotten all kinds of kind thoughtful wise compassionate reasonable yeah. intelligent you know functional in the space of complicated spiritual experiences etc we figured out how to do it in individuals and in small groups we just haven't figured out how to scale it yeah, right? which is yeah. why I work on projects like the EPRC, which are about how to empower the mainstream clinical world to help scale it rather than be a less than helpful um, contributor to it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, people doing the CE5 work, I, you know, certainly not everybody, but it kind of brings that kind of um, space uh, to the work is, you know, people kind of understand all well, these other beings and, um, you know, so we're, we're kind of similar in a way um, and, you know, positive intentions for peaceful contact, you know, and that's generally a kind of, and, you know, we have everybody in the group working together kind of in a lighthearted spirit. So I think that's kind of like a really cool practice. Um, not as cool as uh, I guess clinically trying to do this, cause that's going to hopefully change a lot. Yeah, um, I but hope I think, so. yeah man. Um, and so I hope, I hope you succeed in that, man. Thanks. I think it's going to take a bunch of time. These systems have staggering inertia, and I think it's going to require generational change, um, yeah. which unfortunately yeah. is on you know, large timescales. And I think it's going to cost a few hundred million or more dollars, uh, which is also, you know, but that's less than a, a tenth of what it costs to um, bring a single drug to market through the FDA. So it's not, you know, impossible yeah. amounts of money. Um, yeah. But I, th I think this is doable. Like, I think now we have the use case meditation and psychedelics and spiritual technologies and sightings and the notion that consciousness might be important. Um, like these are scaling rapidly across societies and countries and hopefully the public inertia and pressure on incredibly resistant, incredibly conservative healthcare um, systems will uh, create the market incentives that basically force them to up their game and um, help uh, with this big project. Yeah, so I know you're not a, a technical uh, CE5 practitioner, but just as somebody who has a vast knowledge of meditation and all these kind of practices, um, what, do you, what do you think if you were gonna go out and do your own protocols of something like a CE5, what would you do? Yeah, so just so you, for people who are listening, my exposure to the CE5 protocol is the incredibly weirdly brief description of it you find um, in the movie of essentially the same name. Um, and I thought they were going to like go into some detail and they really didn't. But yeah. uh, I was like, what the heck? Like you have to buy the app. <laughs> and I, I, yeah. I, I must say I was disappointed. I was like, yeah. what? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's That's but, like, a whole the other thing we can the get into. Thing. Okay, whatever. 
anyway, sorry, my cynicism kicking in again. I'm sure it's oh, all, it's hopefully it's all good. Um, all good but uh, but yeah, Buddhism 101 is first make this clean. Like I would shower, I would put on clean clothes that were spiritually meaningful to me. Um, I would find a beautiful, peaceful place to do this. I, I'm not sure why it necessarily has to be outside though, if they're in spaceships, obviously yeah. probably better, but you know, any place that's peaceful and quiet. I've had lots, I've had literally an entity experience in this room, literally yeah. just two yeah. feet behind where I'm sitting right now. Yeah. Um, so like, and actually I've had a few entity experiences in this room um, and some powerful ones. Actually, I'm gonna, actually, I'm gonna diverge for just a second. Well, I had this other powerful entity experience where all of a sudden that wall there opened up, I could literally see through it into this gigantic gray space and trudging past was this massive being it, it looked like a kind of like a one of the giants from um, uh, Harry Potter, like it was huge gray thing with like a big head and, you know, sort of loincloth and big gangly arms. And, and it was trudging along and I could feel the weight of its footsteps and it wasn't trudging on anything. It literally appeared to be walking just through the astral plane or whatever, but not on anything at all. Like why yeah. this thing would walk astrally, I have no idea, but there wasn't any ground it was treading on. But when its feet came down, I could feel the reverberative weight of its massive footsteps, like shaking me and the room. And I I've never had the sense of, like when I when I read about angels in the Old Testament, which are these things that implied like awe and terror, and I had never felt that until I was in the presence of this giant thing that was giving me no attention at all. It was just trudging past. I don't know how far that way, etheric, astrally, whatever distance is kind of hard to make sense of when yeah. there's no good reference points because it was just kind of gray space it was trudging through. Um, and but I got that sense of awe, like holy shit that thing is huge and unbelievably powerful and i'm like a friggin ant to it like yeah. now i know what that feeling is like anyway sorry back to protocols i would so make the bases clean put on nice clean clothes get with a bunch of nice people who i trusted and had were very similarly intentioned and good people like you know good people you would you would you know go on a 10-day boat journey with or something that kind of good um, yeah. and, uh, like, and then, yeah, definitely get my concentration super deep, strong. I would rise up through eight jhanas, have a fruition, come out, um, stabilize back in the afterglow. And then, yeah, location data makes perfect sense. So obviously, and then just intend with blessings, sending out positive energy, like a beacon, Hey, inviting positive entities and I would filter it a little bit like so I'm on, on the sort of spectrum of like chaos magic you know sorry of like grimoire wizards who would like you know bind their entities in like you know with powerful spells and in magic circles drawn on the floor that's sort of one <laughs> end of how to relate to entities you know yeah. versus like spiritualists who would just open it up and say oh spirits whoever you are whatever you are come and yeah. make yourself known yeah i fall somewhere like about here yeah. so i'm not going to just open up to whatever the heck is out there but i'm not going to bind them with powerful you know circles and things but i'm going to be like here i'm going to have some reasonable defenses present in case I need them and my wits about me and an ability to cast and conjure if I need to. Um, but I'm going to open it up to benevolent, reasonable entities that I would have some appreciate, you know, that would appreciate interacting with me and that I would have some reason to interact with. And so there's some kind of natural synergy there of like why yeah. we should connect. 
because yeah. like the vast majority of people, I would not like just randomly call them and say, Hey, want to talk? Like if I yeah. didn't know them, you know, yeah. like, Absolutely. You know, yeah. And so I would say, Hey, entities out there who have a reason, reason to talk with me who are benevolent and decent and appreciate this kind of dynamics and space we're setting up. If you're interested in, here's an invite to this party today. Yeah. Something like that. Very and cool. then I would just wait with an open mind, hang out and drift and let the mind open and see what happened. Yeah. Very cool. That's kind so of what Dan, I, I could, I could talk to you probably for the next 10 hours, <laughs> but our time is somewhat limited. So um, would you have, if I were closing? really going to do it, yeah. I would be about 12 or 15 days into a fire casino retreat. Because well, in that realm, at that point, yeah. you know, uh, like I'm powered up and stuff just happens, right? So that's yeah. where I think most people are missing in the realm of magic and powers and encounters and entities. Their concentration is just not strong enough. Yeah. Like, well, and so I, if you want to add some cool tech to this and you have the time, you know, just do some kind of hyper-concentrated practice like fire casino or mantra or whatever you like, pick your own favorite yeah. variety, 10 to 15 hours a day, you know, with very, very few distractions, past the threshold where you get out past the murk and the weird stuff and on into the realm of malleability where stuff is just happening magically. You'll know when you're in the space. It's usually, yeah. you know, for me, it's 75 to hundred hours, maybe up to 150 and depends on the various factors. When you're in the space, you can, you have access, all the stuff that like, how do I see chakras? How do I draw symbols in the air? How do I pass energy to other people or do whatever you know when you, you get into that territory and the stuff just starts happening and there's anyway fluid control of experience and opening and anyway that's what i would do so that yeah. would be the teeny little bit of tech i would add to this the problem is obviously the opportunity cost is quite high you know that's a bunch of time um yeah. and not risk-free right because getting to the levels of depth of that kind of concentration can be weird okay yeah. cool you were gonna say Sorry. I was going to say that's something I emphasize. Now, I guess not to that level, but I emphasize in CE5 work if people are interested in and in going out and trying to do a CE5 is to do preparation work. You know, whether it's you know throughout the day or several days in advance, and just do the their meditation, the protocol, whatever they like to do. For you know, the the more you do, the better odds you're going to have. Basically, you know, like if you're going to call your friend last minute and say, hey meet me at the diner now, you know, which generally some people have the idea they're going to do a 20 minute meditation and they're going to start seeing things in the sky. You know, it would be better if you called your friend and said, Hey, you want to meet me next Tuesday, five o'clock, my house. Cool. That, you know what I mean? The, just the decency and the likelihood of, um, of an encounter occurring is going to be much greater. Um, but again, um, do you have any closing words here regarding anything from, from UFOs, to contact or insight stages or anything along those lines. Yeah, read, educate yourself, keep your wits about you and keep basic life function somewhere, you know, highly prioritized into the mix, right? I mean, awesome. you know, like I've had all kinds of magical experiences and because I had the sense to behave and speak in reasonable ways, they didn't wreck my life. Yeah. Had I not had that those kinds of sensibilities, things could have gone mind-bogglingly, mind-bogglingly horribly wrong, and I would not have ended up the you know hopefully relatively um, uh, functional person that I ended up. Especially and, as an MD. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah. 
so there's a way to have these experiences just as you know like the christians have noticed like you know i'm very close to lots of pentecostal churches where people routinely fall to the ground struck by the spirit of you know god or whatever and speak in tongues and things like but they know when to turn it on sunday in church and when to yeah. shut it off at work yeah. right and if you can't do that you you know, or if you can't have these experiences and yet still relate to them in a reasonable professional way that's appropriate for the context or social setting or whatever you find yourself in, you got a problem from my point of view. That doesn't mean you have to think that, but I do. And you should try to work on that, says I, again, one dude's opinion on the internet. Yeah. So <laughs> where, where can people find your work if they're interested in finding you? You can find it at integrateddaniel.info or mctb.org and or the community, the Dharma Overground, D-H-A-R-M-A-O-V-E-R-G-R-O-U-N-D.org, and or the E-P-R-C, T-H-E-E-P-E-R-C.org, and or ebenefactors.org. Um, so those are some of the places you can find me. And lots awesome. of other people. Well, if on, on you, people listening to this on YouTube, I'm gonna throw some of those links into the description. Uh, Daniel, uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's really been a pleasure. It's, it's really so awesome to be able to talk to somebody that's so dynamic and understands all this and is so cool. I'm so. not saying I understand all this. Like, no, I did no, not make that claim. I mean, who oh, can oh, go there? Yeah, try to go there and, and hopefully do it in a way that hopefully is useful to somebody, hopefully including myself. So, yeah. yeah. So thank you so much, Daniel. Cool. It's and, been uh, fun. Yeah. I hope to have you on again sometime soon. Bye. Take care.